The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 504th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going across the pond to Britain. We're going to talk about Dartmoor. And the reason we're doing this is because, as you will recall, on our last episode, we did Maine's Kennebunkport, and one of the homes we covered was Captain James Fairfield's. Well, he spent time at Dartmoor Prison during the War of 1812. And you know me, my inquiring mind... Went down that rabbit hole. I was like, it's a prison. I wonder if it's haunted. So I looked into it. Sure enough, there's some haunting going on there. But while I went down that rabbit hole, wow, there's a lot of tunnels because Dartmoor has to be one of the most mystical, legendary, and superstitious places on earth. So we have a lot of legends to share with you guys from this area. Looking forward to it. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spectacular crew, Colin with two L's, Tamara, Brandy, Carol, Lauren, and Jody with an IE. Thank you for joining our Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Karen Miller. There's a corporate building located in Newark, Ohio, along State Route 16 that may give out-of-towners pause. Those who are familiar with the name will immediately associate it with the well-made, somewhat pricey woven baskets that were all the craze in the 1980s and 90s, reaching their highest grossing year in 2000, with $1 billion in sales. In 1997, the Longeberger Company was doing so well that founder Dave Longeberger decided he wanted to create a corporate headquarter building of an unusual sort. His desire was that the building be made to look like his company's medium-sized market basket, which was Dave's personal favorite of all the woven baskets his company created. By the end of 1997, the new building was completed and 500 employees moved into their new $30 million headquarters. It was an exact replica, even including the basket handles. Dave Longeberger passed away in 1999 after retiring in 1998 at the age of 65. By 2015, sales of the well-known baskets had severely declined, and it was that year that the company put its Market Basket corporate building on the market. 
It was finally purchased in December 2017 by a developer for $800,000, which was much lower than the original $7.5 million asking price. Although it has been marketed by the developer as an ideal location for a variety of different businesses, the pandemic halted that. At this time, it has been pulled from the market. However, the developer who purchased the basket building told Columbus Business First that he is weighing other options for his building. The developer recently received the Heritage Ohio Preservation Hero Award, so we can hope that this unusual building will continue to stand proudly. Regardless of what the building houses in the future, a seven-story building resembling an iconic basket certainly is odd. Peekaboo, I see you. Yeah. You with the little things sticking in your ears. I'm in your head right now. Those are my fingers in your brain. <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of September, on the 4th in 1833, Barney Flaherty was hired by the publisher of the New York Sun to become the first newsboy. Barney was a mere 10 years old when Benjamin Day, the newspaper publisher, offered him the position. Flaherty was an Irish immigrant who answered an advertisement posted in the New York Sun. His test to secure the position was simply throwing newspapers into some bushes. Newsboys were actually entrepreneurs as they were not employees of the papers, but instead purchased the papers at a reduced rate and then sold them to the public for a markup. Unfortunately, if newsboys did not sell all of their papers, the New York Sun would not buy them back. For many Irish-American children, having the position of a newsie was their only means of monetary support. Many of the newspaper boys would sleep on the streets even if they still had parents due to overcrowding or abuse at home. By 1870, living situations had somewhat improved with the establishment of newsboys' lodging houses, which gave the boys a place to live as well as meals for a set price. Barney Flaherty was a pioneer in the newspaper business, bringing the daily paper to the common man. Dartmoor is located in an upland area of southern Devon, England. Much of the area is protected by a national park, and it has the largest concentration of Bronze Age ruins in the United Kingdom. This land has been an inspiration to many writers. The landscape is full of standing stones, tombs, legends, and spirits. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Dartmoor. Dartmoor started as a wooden landscape that has transformed through the years into a rugged moorland with open fields. The ruins of several Bronze Age settlements can be found here as well as Kisfians, which are Neolithic stone box-like tombs. People have lived here for thousands of years, but it wasn't until the medieval period that more settlers came, and they used the natural granite to build their homes. Many of these were longhouses, and a few have managed to survive up until today. Tin mining became a major industry. Over half of the national parkland is actually privately owned by the Duke of Cornwall. The Northern Moors play host to military exercises. 
This is a land of myth and legend with stories of pixies, black shucks, headless horsemen, and ghosts. And for those of you who are keen Harry Potter fans, this is the location of the 1994 Quidditch World Cup final between Ireland and Bulgaria in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Kelly, let's start off with Buckland Abbey. Buckland Abbey started off as a cistern abbey that was founded in 1278. The monks there managed several farmsteads. A tithe barn was added to the abbey in the 15th century. Starting in 1536, King Henry VIII started the dissolution of the monasteries and the abbey was shut down. Sir Richard Grenville bought the abbey in 1541 and converted it into a residence that he called Buckland Grenville. His family owned it for 40 years and then Sir Francis Drake bought it. He lived here for 15 years and it was passed down through his descendants until 1946. Captain Arthur Rod bought it then and presented it to the National Trust in 1947. It was restored and opened as a museum. Rumors claim that undiscovered tunnels run from the abbey to the village. There are stories of ghosts being sighted in and around the abbey with the most prominent spirit belonging to Sir Francis Drake. Legends claim he was in league with the devil. Now he's seen riding in a black coach that is drawn by headless horses and usually being pursued by hounds. Next, we have the Calling Stones. The River Dart rises high on Dartmoor and flows to the sea at Dartmouth, where the Dartmouth Harbor is located with a long history of maritime usage. The former home of Agatha Christie, Greenway Estate, has views of the river. So you can imagine this land is one of the things that inspired her. I know. The River Dart is much feared, not only because it can rise without notice after a heavy rainfall on the moors, but because it is said to take one life a year. Legends claim there are calling stones along the river, and they call out a victim's name, luring them to the river where they fall in and drown. And now on to Score Hill Circle. This stone circle is the largest in Dartmoor and stands near the confluence of the North Tane River and Wallabrook. Women who were sinful could come to the stones and pray for forgiveness at the foot of the stone. If God didn't forgive them, a stone would fall on them. There are 23 stones still standing with 11 fallen, so there could be 11 very unlucky women under them. I always love how it's, no, the stones that have fallen over, let's come up with a story about this. It fell on top of women. (laughs) Not any guys that were sinful and came looking for forgiveness. Next is Shaw Bridge. This is home to a pixie. He stands 17 inches and wears red and blue clothing. When spotted, he quickly vanishes. Legends also claim that the area near the bridge is where the devil and his hellhounds hunt. These hounds are going to come up over and over again. The black shuck loves Dartmoor. Clearly. And next we have Tenhill Kistvin. It is said that on this spot in October of 1631, a man named Jan Reynolds was approached by a cloaked stranger. This cloaked stranger told Jan that he would give him seven years of good luck in exchange for his soul. Jan agreed, and seven years later, the stranger appeared again, showing himself to be the devil, and he collected Jan's soul while he was sitting in Whittacombe Church. So much for sanctuary in a sanctuary. Yeah, I would think the devil couldn't even come in there, but apparently he could to collect a soul, and really, is seven years of good luck really worth it? (laughs) I would say no. No. (laughs) Bowerman's Nose. This is a stack of granite stones that stands over 21 feet high. A legend claims that Bowerman was a hunter, and one day while he was hunting a rabbit, he happened upon a coven of witches who were conducting a ritual. He ran right through the middle of it and made them very angry. 
So the next time Bowerman went out hunting, one of the witches turned herself into a rabbit, and she led him all over Dartmoor until he was exhausted. And then the coven turned him into the pile of rocks. His dogs became the rocks at Hound Tor. And now on to Branscombe's loaf and cheese. <laughs> Anybody hungry? <laughs> well, we haven't had breakfast yet, and my stomach has been making all sorts of noise. Yeah, let's have some cheese and bread. Come on. Walter Branscombe was the Bishop of Exeter in the 13th century. He and his servant were traveling across the Corn Ridge when they were stopped by a stranger. This man offered them bread and cheese, and Walter took some of the food, but before he could eat any of it, his servant knocked it from his hands. He then pointed at the stranger and said, This is the devil. Look at his cloven hoof. The bread and cheese tumbled through the air until they landed on top of the Corn Ridge. The devil disappeared. This is now a tor, or outcrop of rocks, that can be visited. So as people can see, what's really interesting about this, this has all kinds of these rocks and outcroppings and everything. And it's so like people were walking along and were like, let's make up a story about that. <laughs> and next we have the Hound of the Baskervilles. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the creator of Sherlock Holmes. And one of the most popular stories featuring Holmes was the Hound of the Baskervilles. Doyle stayed at the Duchy Hotel in Princeton and heard these stories about Dartmoor and he was inspired by them. The story he latched onto was about Squire Richard Cabell, who was said to be Devon's most notorious squire. Richard Cabell was the squire at Buckfastley on the edge of Dartmoor in the 17th century. Rumors about the squire claimed he had murdered his wife and that he would hunt after the young maidens in the village. When he died, the townspeople had to figure out a safe way to bury him because they believed he had sold his soul to the devil. They decided to bury his body in the graveyard at Holy Trinity Church in an altar tomb outside the south door of the church. This is today known as the Sepulchre, and looks like a jail with a wide iron grill and a strong wooden door with a locked keyhole. Black shucks have become connected to him. One bit of lore claimed that Cabell was chased across the moor by some black dogs that accompanied the wild hunt. He eventually dropped dead. Another story claims that as he lay dying, the black hounds bayed outside, which was a death warning that has become ingrained with black shucks. There were stories that the black dogs would visit his burial regularly and howl. There are people who claim that a red light was seen behind the bars in the sepulchre. Young men used to challenge each other at the tomb. They had to walk clockwise around the building 13 times and then stick a finger into the keyhole and then stick a finger into the keyhole and see if the squire not on their fingertips <laughs> like some okay. weird version of Bloody Mary or Black Aggie. Oh, my. <laughs> and you just know, you know, you get those sensations when you're thinking about something. So the minute you put it in the keyhole, you know, you're going to get this weird feeling like something's chewing on your finger. Right. The mind is a powerful thing. And it's really weird that they came up with that your fingertips would get gnawed on rather than you get like a zing or your finger gets cut off or something like that. People watch for demons when they visit as it is thought they still have yet to claim the soul of the squire. Lots of people getting their souls claimed around here. <laughs> and now on to Coffinstone. There was another evil man who had died and was being carried in a coffin for burial at the Whittacombe churchyard. The pallbearers became tired and set the coffin down for a moment to rest. It was at this moment that God sent a lightning bolt down as a sign of his displeasure that the man was going to be buried in a churchyard. The coffin was split in two, as was the stone it sat upon. This stone can still be seen today near Yartor on Dartmeat Hill. Would you like to go for a little swim, Kelly? Is it cold? <laughs> well, it's over in Britain. I bet it is. 
All right. So this is called the crazy well pool. It'll be invigorating. <laughs> yeah. You know what? They tell you cold showers and baths. Every entrepreneur and life coach and all those will tell you, turn on the cold water. It'll get you going <laughs> in the morning. I try it every so often and I last for maybe 30 seconds and I'm like, okay, I'm invigorated. Get me the hell out of here. I think you're lying. <laughs> know how easily you get cold. <laughs> I have tried it a Your few nose times. Your is getting longer. <laughs> but it's not something I would do on a regular basis, and I sure wouldn't get into a cold pool or tub. Mm -mm. On a gloomy day, Crazy Well Pool can look every bit the bottomless and malevolent swimming hole it is reputed to be in lore. The pool sits high up on the moors of Dartmoor and was more than likely formed by miners who were excavating for tin. In 1998, a 16-year-old recruit in the Royal Marines named Nathaniel Burton drowned in the pond, so it does have the possibility of drowning people. The pool is about 16 feet deep, but legend claims that it is bottomless. A story goes that if a person gazes into the waters on Midsummer's Eve, they will see a likeness of the next person who is going to die. The pool is said to call out the name of that person to attract them to drown. If you're walking around any water here in Dartmoor, do not listen when your name is called. <laughs> I mean, clearly. All the water's calling to people. Come on over for a dip. <laughs> Little dippy doo. Yeah. The witch of Sheep Store is said to haunt the pool. Men would come to her for advice, but it generally was bad advice. She told Piers Gaveston, who owned the forest of Dartmoor from 1308, that he should come out of hiding and return to the king's court with his head held high, even though he'd been banished. So he did just that and ended up beheaded with his head on a pike up on high battlements. And in more recent times, a couple of young men went up to the pool on a dare at midnight and ended up crashing their motorcycle, where they called to the pool as the next to die. <laughs> You're terrible. People actually died, you know. I know. <laughs> Good grief. Well, I'm thinking that they did. I don't know. That could be a story, too. The guy who drowned, that was a real story. He really did drown, unfortunately. Gotcha. And next we have Kitty J's grave. Years ago, people who committed suicide weren't allowed to be buried in consecrated ground. This meant that many times those people were buried at crossroads, so their spirits would be confused and unable to find their way back to town to haunt the living. At Dartmoor National Park, there is a grave called Kitty J's grave. A legend claims that Kitty J was a 19th century farm worker who became pregnant and then was rejected by the father of the child. She hanged herself in despair and was buried at a crossroads. A man named James Bryan dug up the body and reinterred it and set up the stones that now mark the spot. But something weird happened after that. Fresh flowers began appearing on the grave every morning. No one knows who was leaving the flowers. Some people thought perhaps pixies were doing it. Novelist John Galsworthy wrote the novel The Apple Tree, which is based on Kitty J's tale. I wonder if the flowers are still there. If somebody's still doing it or... Well, if anybody knows, please drop us a line. I mean, my guess would be James Bryan. If he goes to all the trouble to dig her up, I mean, was he right. a relative of hers or something? Not most people are going to do that, so... That would be my thought, too. Next, we have the Dewar Stone. This is a large granite outcrop that stands over 328 feet high, and it's named for Old Dewar, which was an ancient Celtic term for the devil. This is the site of an Iron Age hill fort. Apparently, the cloven-hoofed one liked to come out here riding on a large black horse with his black shucks running nearby, and he would drive poor travelers to their deaths off the top of the Dewar Stone. And now on to Ghostly Legion's Hunter's Tour. 
Hunter's Tor plays host to a ghostly regiment of Roman legionnaires on nights of the full moon. This is above Leslie Cleave, where they probably died. Another story claims that a ghostly Tudor hunting party has been seen in this area as well. And that use of cleave, that actually means cliff or cleft. Kelly, have you ever met Cuddy Dyer? I don't think so. <laughs> when I saw this name, I thought of Cuddy Sark. <laughs> anyway, Cuddy Dyer is an evil sprite who lives at Kingsbridge and Ashburton. There was a story told to children as a warning to not go out after dark. Cuddy Dyer was said to kill drunks that came by him on the road by slitting their throats, drinking their blood, and throwing the bodies into the river. Goodness. The following account was published in the Devonshire Association of Science, Literature, and Art in 1879. Old townspeople of Ashburton recollect well the dread of their lives when children. Was a mysterious being supposed to inhabit the river Yeo, with whose displeasure and its undefined consequences they were threatened by parents and nurses as a punishment for disobedience and childish frolics. To the generation before, namely to our great-grandparents, Cuddy Dyer was the dread of their more mature years and was supposed to inflict summary punishment on toppers as they reeled with difficulty by night through the dark streets to their houses. He was described by persons who saw him as being very tall, standing in the water to his waist with red eyes as large as saucers. Holy cow. Is he an <laughs> alien? Endeavoring to pull them into the water. When the stream was bridged, he remained only to scare children, and on the streets being lighted, disappeared altogether. See? That's all you got to do is have a little nightlight and you're fine. It scares all the bad guys away. We have awesome nightlights. Our little skeleton in the coffin and the carriage, Victorian carriage. Yeah, the ones from Bed Bath & Beyond. Yes, indeed. Yeah, those are very cool. Next, we have Fitz's Well. Dartmoor has a couple of holy wells and Fitz's Well can be found near both Oakhampton and Princetown. And a similar tale is told about both. There is a very worn cross surrounded by a ring of stones that stands nearly three feet tall next to a well surrounded by concrete and capped by a metal lid. This is called Fitz's Well and was named for Sir John Fitz, who was a lawyer at Tavistock in the 16th century. Supposedly, he and his wife were led into the moors by a pixie and they became hopelessly lost. They stumbled across this well and were able to get a drink and this broke the spell they were under and the fog dissipated. They were able to find their way home. Fitz then erected the cross near the well so others could find it. The Oakhampton is well known for its eye cures and for many years was visited on Easter morning by young people. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And speaking of Oakhampton, there is a castle there. This is a Mott and Bailey castle built between 1068 and 1086 that guarded a crossing point across the West Oakmont River. The castle eventually became a hunting lodge. It fell into decay, and the ruins were renovated in the 20th century and today runs as a tourist attraction. The castle is said to be haunted by Lady Howard, who was quite the character. 
There are claims that she murdered three of her husbands and two of her children in the 17th century. Oh, my. She rides in a coach made of the bones of her victims and is cursed with the job of collecting blades of grass found in the castle ruins until the end of time or until she at least finds the last blade of grass. So keep the grass growing, I guess. A one-eyed hound occasionally joins her. And next we have Child's Tomb, which is another stone cross on the moor that is a reconstruction of the original. The original was destroyed when someone carried the granite stones off to build a house. Look, it looks like somebody built a really cool cross here. I think I'll just destroy it and build a house out of it. Oh my word. I bet that house is haunted. Probably. The cross marks the site of a legendary tragedy. Child was a wealthy hunter and lord of the manor of Plimstock, and his real name was probably Orduf. Child was derived from a term that was more like a title. He was caught in a blizzard on Dartmoor and hopelessly lost. He decided the only way to save himself would be to kill his horse and climb inside the animal's body for warmth. So, see, doing that to a tauntaun isn't original. It's not. I bet that's where (laughs) George Lucas got it from. (laughs) Poor Child froze to death anyway. He wrote his will on a nearby granite stone before he died. It is said that whoever found his body and buried him would inherit his estate. The monks of Tavistock Abbey recovered his body and claimed the land. This tomb lies on the line of several cairns that had once marked the monk's path between Tavistock Abbey and Buckfast Abbey. When I was a kid, I loved reading horror comics, which is why I'm loving the season (laughs) of Riverdale. Seven of Riverdale, (laughs) because that's totally what they're getting into, not to mention it's set in the 50s, which is one of my favorite time periods. But one of the stories that I remember, so all the way back to my childhood, which was a long time ago, I remember reading a story that was a horror story on the, it was like the Old West. I think there was like a cowboy who had killed some Native Americans or something like that. And it was freezing out. So he kills this buffalo and climbs inside of it, just like this story. Only he didn't just freeze to death. It was like the buffalo squeezed him to death as like punishment for hurting the people of the land. It was a lot more graphic and everything since it was a horror comic. But yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. When I was looking this up, I'm like, oh, that reminds me of that story from my childhood. Next, we have Spinster's Rock. This is a Neolithic dolmen or burial chamber and the only one left in Devon. There are three upright stones with one large capstone. When found, there were several stone circles nearby, leading archaeologists to believe that this was a bigger burial complex. A story claims that it was erected by three maidens or spinsters one morning before breakfast. And that's where the name comes from. Spinsters spun wool. They're not older women who decided not to get married. (laughs) (laughs) Another story claims that a man and his two sons were turned to stone while raising the capstone. The reason this happened is because it was the Sabbath when they weren't supposed to be working. Aha. And now on to Newhouse Inn. East Dartmoor has an area called Foles Arishes. Fole was a Dartmoor resident, and an Arish is a stubble field. The fields once fed his horses, but eventually a public house was built here called the Newhouse Inn. It unfortunately burned down in 1876, but there are still some ruins left. Perhaps someone died in the fire because the ruins are rumored to be haunted by a figure wearing a gray greatcoat riding a horse. Next is Beater Cross. Beater Cross sits high on the wall of what is called the Watching Place. It's named for a nearby farm. A newspaper article in the Western Morning News on August 28, 1900 describes it thus. An interesting relic from the past has been rescued from oblivion and restored to its original position. This is the cross which formerly stood at Watching Place in the parish of North Bovey 
At the point of junction of the land leading from that village with the Morton Hampstead and Princetown Road, it is known as Beater Cross, and tradition says it marked the spot where a battle was fought between the Christian British of the Moor and the pagan Saxon invaders. Be that as it may, the generally accepted opinion now is that this and many other wayside crosses were erected to serve as landmarks to guide travelers and were fashioned in the form of the symbol of Christianity to save them from mutilation or destruction in an age when such symbols were religiously respected. I was so happy when I ran across that article because I was like, oh, that explains why there's so many crosses all over the place here, because you'd think, are these a bunch of burials that are just randomly here and there? But they actually were using them as basically street crossings, or so people knew this is where this is, this is where this is. And you think, well, why don't you just put a rock there or a obelisk or something like that? And they're like, well, if we put up a cross, people won't destroy it, except for that one guy who decided to build his house out of them. There is said to be a highwayman who came to his end here and that his spirit still remains. He appears as a full-bodied apparition that watches the road, and if one looks close enough, they'll see that he has empty eye sockets. Oh. Not sure how they know he's watching the road then, but... (laughs) You gotta love the name of this next location, Kelly. Yeah. Harry Hands Bridge. (laughs) And it is Harry, H-A-I-R-Y. There is a bridge on the B-3212 between Post Bridge and Two Bridges that has a weird haunting, along with a weird name. Yeah. (laughs) When people try to cross the bridge, either on a bike or by car, these gross, hairy hands appear on the steering wheel or handlebars and try to drive the vehicle or bike off the road. The patch of road is notorious for wrecks, many of them fatal. In 1921, a medical officer from Dartmoor Prison died after his motorbike went out of control. Many people try to avoid this area. Places that have lots of fatal wrecks do get reputations, but I've never heard of people making up a thing about hairy hands causing it. (laughs) Right. See somebody jump out in front of the cars or something like that, but very interesting. And speaking of Dartmoor Prison, why don't we talk about that? This is our last location and the inspiration behind this episode, of course. We love our jails. We certainly do. Best places to investigate. I know. Construction began in March of 1806 on land that was owned by the Prince of Wales in Dartmoor. The Napoleonic Wars were in full swing, having started in 1793, and there was a need for more space to put prisoners of war. Estimates are that there were 100,000 prisoners, mainly naval, during this war. What they had been doing is they had all these ships that they had out kind of off in the water here and there. Well, it's just not sustainable to try to keep all these prisoners on these ships and they get sick and all that stuff. So the prison was designed by Daniel Asher Alexander and took three years to complete. This was a large prison with several buildings built in a circular layout. There was a cooking house where prisoners would receive their allowance. There was a bath and a hospital with the matron's house and dispensary facing it. A separate building known as the Petty Officer's Prison was also here. The prison yard had five cell blocks radiating around it. The aqueduct fed a pond and drainage ditches ran along the privies, making for unsanitary conditions and one can only imagine the smell. Yeah. There was also a north and south guard room. Despite being fairly new, when the prisoners were here during the War of 1812, the roofs leaked. Food was bad and conditions were very poor. They did try to maintain some hygiene by having the bedding exposed to the air every morning and rooms were ventilated. However, there were outbreaks of smallpox, pneumonia, and typhoid. 
prisoners wore yellow uniforms with blue stripes. They were allowed to make things from wood and such and sell them to the public for money. They could then buy additional food or other things considered luxuries in the prison. About 6,500 American prisoners stayed here between 1813 and 1815. Not many officers were among the prisoners as they were thought to have honor and given immediately parole, and they were sent to parole towns in the area. Escape was nearly impossible as the prison was surrounded by a high stone wall and there were many guards here. There was also an ingenious alarm system that was basically a rope that ringed the walls that had lots of bells on it. So if someone tried to get out, the bells would sound. If a prisoner did get out, he found that the prison was quite isolated in the moors. He would have to traverse a difficult land for at least 10 miles, and even then, townspeople were happy to bring them back to the prison because they were rewarded with a guinea pig, I just. <laughs> yeah, Kelly, I don't think it was a guinea pig, and I we don't think it was one. a guinea fowl either. <laughs> Although a guinea fowl would probably be nice. I mean, it'd be dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I guess a guinea pig would be dinner, too. I actually worked with well, a guy back in the <laughs> day who was a missionary. I think he was a Mormon, so his mission trip was down to Peru. And so he had eaten guinea pig. And at the time, I was like, oh, my gosh, because I just had guinea pigs when I was a kid. As we mentioned on our previous episode, Captain James Fairfield of Kennebunkport, Maine, spent time here during the War of 1812 because of privateering. While he was here, the Dartmoor Massacre occurred. The Treaty of Ghent had been signed between the Americans and British in December of 1814. So American prisoners like James Fairfield assumed they would be released immediately. However, the British government waited until the treaty was ratified by the Senate on February 17, 1815. And then they still waited to release prisoners because transport ships took a while to get together. So there was finally a riot on April 16, 1815. The final straw was actually the kitchen trying to serve old tack rather than fresh bread. Don't ever mess with food. That's why they say bread and circuses keep the people tame. They won't rise up. Don't give them old tack. The riot wasn't really what we would call violent as only a few prisoners threw some rocks. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it's going to get violent on the other side. No fire order was given, but after an initial volley fired over the prisoners' heads, the guards then fired directly into the prisoners. Sixty prisoners were injured and seven killed. The families of those killed and survivors were later granted pensions because, of course, they did an investigation and right. found out. But the guy who was in charge of the whole thing, he actually got promoted. Oh, my goodness. So they did prove that he didn't give the call to fire. But still, you're in charge when this happens. How do you get a promotion? I don't know. It doesn't matter if you didn't instigate it or whatever. You were in charge. That means you get in trouble. That's why you never want to be in charge of anything. The last Frenchman left the prison in early 1816. The jail was unused until 1850. It reopened to civilian convicts the following year after renovations. Conscientious objectors were kept here during World War I. Starting in 1920, some of the worst of the worst in Britain were housed here. The mad axeman, Frank Mitchell, was one such criminal. A mutiny broke out in 1932 due to poor conditions. The property was heavily damaged and a prisoner was shot, but none of the staff was hurt. Well-armed guards were brought in after two hours of the prisoners terrorizing the staff and the rebellion was put down. The prison remains open today and holds mainly nonviolent and white-collar criminals. Much of the original part of the prison was demolished to add modern cell blocks, but the original main entrance, the line of the wall, and circular shape, barrack road, and aqueduct outlet all remain. The entrance gate still reads, Spare the Vanquished. Conditions have improved in recent years, but for most of its existence, the prison hasn't done the best job. 
There actually was talk of shutting it down in 2021, but they've kept it open still. So I guess they've decided to keep housing prisoners there. Keep on keeping on. Yeah. Part of the prison maintains a museum. The prison is said to be haunted. One of the spirits here is thought to belong to David Davies, who tended the prison sheep from 1869 to 1929. He had a long run of doing that. Certainly did. 60 years. Shortly after being released, he passed away. His spirit returned to the jail and has been seen walking the prison grounds on misty nights. French POWs are also said to haunt the prison after being brought here and dying during the Napoleonic Wars. Inmates believe that jackdaws that flew around the prison were souls of dead staff. And Kelly, for people who don't know, jackdaws are a type of black bird. Did you know that? I believe they're in the Corvid family. Look at you. (laughs) I had to look it up. I'm like, what's a jackdaw? And I'm a bird watcher. Dartmoor is clearly a land of mysticism and legend. Walking along the moors reveals many remnants of the past that were erected as reflections of some of the superstitions from years ago. There seems to be spirits wandering in various places as well. Are these legends true and is Dartmoor haunted? That is for you to decide. Lots of legends there in Dartmoor. What a treasure trove to happen upon. I was just like, I wonder if this prison is haunted. And then I started looking at stuff and I went, wow. (laughs) So for those of you who live over in the UK, check out Dartmoor sometime. It'd be fun to just go hiking through there and see all the different stone circles. Oh, absolutely. Try to find pixies wandering around. Just don't follow them because they're going to get you lost. You won't get lost if you go to historyghostbump.com, our website. Queen of the segues. (laughs) And you can also suggest to us a location or if you want to talk to us or comment about something, you can send us a line at historyghostbump at gmail.com or comment on any of our various social media. We're everywhere. Sandy had written in the crew, back in days of film cameras, we took a trip to San Diego, did the whole ghost tour, Whaley Mansion, Hotel Del Coronado deal. Took photos inside and outside of the hotel, along with all the other places we went to. When I got them back, all the photos at Del Coronado were black. None of them came out. Whoa. All the others before and after came out. No way lens was closed as the camera wouldn't shoot if the lens was closed. Just odd. That's bizarre. And I do remember back in the ancient days when we had film for cameras. (laughs) Back in the ancient days. And occasionally you'd get one or two pictures that would come back. The negative would be black. But I've never had an entire roll of film. And I I don't even know that it would have been an entire roll of film. It's just the pictures of the Hotel Del Coronado. Right. Thanks for sharing that, Sandy. How odd. And then over on YouTube, we got a comment under our Keg Mansion Steakhouse episode from Bearing4719. I myself have been to the Keg Mansion and I personally recommend the food. It's very good. I think I might have had a ghostly encounter there. I'd gone to Toronto with my aunt and my dad and had gone on a ghost tour. We were told about the various haunted places. And one of the key things is that people sometimes smell lavender, which I did on the tour. And I don't think anybody that was with us was wearing lavender and there were no lavender bushes around. So there was no reason to have that smell. Then my aunt and my dad surprised me by telling me we were going to the cake mansion. We got in there, the hostess comes up to us, takes us up the stairs, and as we're going up the stairs, I could feel that it was very, very cold, like colder than even the air conditioning. We were seated, ordered our food, and then I decided I needed to use the restroom. I went into the men's room, and it just felt really weird in there. The toilet started flushing weird, and my aunt even said that the women's room was the same way, very odd. We had our food, 
And while we were eating, we heard banging coming from the stairs and the tables were shaking. I looked over at the stairs to see if there was a reason why there'd be some banging, like a wait staff had dropped something or anything like that, and there was nobody on the stairs. When we went back down the stairs to leave, I again felt what was like this really intense cold spot. So I wonder, did I encounter the children that haunt the place on the stairs and possibly Lily and Macy's ghost? I'm not sure, but the food was really good there. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Daniel Smith. We're going to be burying you under a marble headstone. And Teresa Combs, we're going to be putting you in a chest tomb. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. Barney Plaherty. Pla- Plaherty. Plaherty. <laughs> you need to say it with an Irish accent. <laughs> Not that I can do one. The story goes that if a person. Persian? Persian. If it's a, a Persian. It could be like they're a Persian. Persian cat. It's just this, just, this just applies to Persians. The story goes that if a Persian gazes into the waters. <laughs> so terrible. as long as you're an American or you're just British, you're fine. Plays host to a ghostly regiment of Robin. Robin. They are Robin legionnaires. Does that mean they're wearing a lot of robes? Possibly. It would have been fun if you would have said Robin. Because then we could have all kinds of fun stuff that they're doing. Yeehaw! <laughs> Get them legionnaires some cowboy hats. By a figure wearing a gray great hoat. Gray hoat. Great hoat. He's got a great hoat on. How about a house coat? He was wearing a house coat. By a fi- he was out there in his robe? <laughs> well, we were talking about robes earlier. I guess that's true. French P.O. Double... French... Double... Double... <laughs>